Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in Concord, and now at 101.9 in the beautiful Gate City of Manchester, New Hampshire. We are podcast all over the place, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening by podcast, please subscribe. Well, the uh, Concord Coalition is a nonpartisan grassroots organization dedicated to fiscal responsibility. And since 1992, the coalition has worked to educate the public about the causes and consequences of the federal deficit and debt, and to develop realistic solutions for sustainable budgets. I'm a member of the New Hampshire Advisory Board of the Concord Coalition, but I promise that that will not dampen the discussion with our next guest. Av Harris is the new communications director of the Concord Coalition. He has more than 23 years experience as a communicator, starting with 10 years as an award-winning radio journalist. And by the way, that started off with three years at New Hampshire Public Radio. He volunteered for Dick Sweat's first campaign for Congress in 1990. I remember Dick Sweat coming to visit me in my home in Concord and talking about running for Congress. I told him it was a crazy idea. So, Av, <laughs> welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you, Paul. It's a great uh, honor to be on your program. I've, uh, I've enjoyed your, uh, your getting into radio and your post-congressional career. Listen, a significant part of, of your background is in political policy and communications. And yep. one of your jobs caught my eye. You served as communications director for Mayor Joe Genham. Yes, I did. Uh, he'd been mayor in the 90s and early 2000s, but he was then convicted of corruption, served several, several years in federal prison alongside the well-known corrupt politician, Buddy Cianci of Providence. So how do you handle the politics when your guy is on the defensive over corruption? That's a great question. And uh, I, I think about my days in Bridgeport a lot. Bridgeport is the largest city in Connecticut, uh, about 150,000 people and about an hour north of Manhattan. And for many years, I've worked in Hartford for various state elected officials. And then when Joe Gannam ran for, um, for mayor again in Bridgeport in 2015, he defeated a Democratic incumbent mayor, Bill Finch. He knocked him out in the primary. Um, and the local elections in Connecticut, by the way, are they're partisan, not like New Hampshire and Massachusetts, where they're officially nonpartisan. So there's party politics at play, you know, out in the open. Um, and in cities like that, a lot of cities, especially in the Northeast, it's really a one party city. You know, if you win the Democratic primary, you're you're going to be, you know, the, the next mayor. So Joe uh defeated Bill Finch in the primary. And it was a fascinating thing to watch because here he is running as somebody who's done seven years in federal prison for corruption while in office. And it was your classic kind of uh, political scandal. Uh, he, he was convicted on seven, uh, 16 felony counts of basically taking bribes and gifts and all kinds of things from people who wanted to do business with the city and contract steering and your typical kind of run-of-the-mill political corruption um, involving, uh, by the way, one person who wanted to develop a casino in Connecticut by the name of Donald Trump. Uh, Trump played a little bit of, of a role 
in uh, the corruption scandal surrounding Joe Gannon. So he gets convicted. He goes to prison for seven years. He gets out in 2010. Um, and in 2015, at the beginning of the year, um, he, he, Joe had always maintained his, his innocence, but then he goes on uh, Emancipation Day uh, to one of the black churches in Bridgeport. And Bridgeport's got a very diverse population, sort of like Manchester, except a little bigger. Um, significant black population of folks who, who migrated up north during the industrial heyday. So he, he goes in front of this black church in the East End Tabernacle on New Year's Day, Emancipation Day in 2015, and he gives this mea culpa. He admits that he was involved in corruption. He apologizes uh, to the people of the city of Bridgeport. He talks about redemption. He talks about everybody deserving a second chance. And the incumbent mayor, uh, Finch, made a, a classic strategic blunder that I don't think he was tuned into. And I think a lot of Democratic politicians and even some Republican politicians need to pay attention to. If you go after somebody for being a convicted felon, a felony conviction, obviously that uh, in a lot of ways in the United States really condemns somebody to second class citizenship for the rest of their lives because it's harder to get a job and it's harder to kind of you know, earn a living. And, and Trump actually did a smart thing when he was president about advancing some second chance society legislation in Congress and we'll get into that another time. But Finch, the Democrat, who was the incumbent mayor of Bridgeport, went after Ganim for being a convicted felon. And it blew back in his face because many people had been incarcerated in Bridgeport, had relatives who were incarcerated in Bridgeport and identified with Joe's story saying, hey, I, I did time. My uncle did time. You know, my mother did time. My cousin did time. Everybody deserves a second chance. And so he got this great you know, he basically he, he went he went to the black and brown community and he got um, a lot of support as this redemption candidate. Everybody deserves a second chance. He ended up winning in the primary um, by about three or four hundred votes. And then in, in the general election, it was, um, you know, he, he he won clearly watching Joe Gannon win back his seat. It was a national story. Well, I do want to get to talking about some national issues, which is, after all, what the Concord Coalition focuses on. But there's one more piece of your personal bio and political background that I think we have to touch on because you have worked sure. for some colorful figures. In the open, Paul alluded to your early campaign experience, and he threw out a name that, yep. look, we're on the radio in New Hampshire. So a yep. lot of our New Hampshire listeners will be familiar with the name he just threw out. But let's not forget that that was from an earlier time. Many of our listeners may have forgotten this name. And our national podcast listeners are going to have no idea why the, the sentence that Paul just delivered made grammatical sense. There was a politician <laughs> in New Hampshire named Dick Sweat. He went by yep. that. that. That's his, yep. his given name. Dick is short for Richard, obviously. Yep. And he went by that. And this is, this is a source of, of some humor. Yes. In, in New Hampshire. He's, by the way, a lovely guy. Um, guy. We, we know him. He, we respect him. He, he does tremendous work in his post-congressional career. And he's a colleague of mine, by the way, on the New Hampshire Advisory Board for the Concord Coalition. Right. Nothing but respect for the man. However, there was a time, and this is, by the way, a, a joke that's kind of told openly with him. As a matter of fact, there was a New Hampshire Democratic Party dinner. There are a lot of New Hampshire Democratic Party dinners. Let's let's be clear. 
And there was a dinner where the chairman of the New Hampshire Democratic Party was kind of openly making fun of this with Dick Sweat as an honoree. Av Harris, would you like to comment <laughs> at all as a communications person on what I'm sure a lot of our audience must be thinking, which is WTF with Okay, that. so very good question. And I have, I have a good answer to it. From a marketing point of view, for a guy who had never run for office before, it was absolutely brilliant strategy to have his name Dick Sweat printed on bumper stickers because my brother and I brought the bumper stickers into high school. And of course, this is the days of Beavis and Butthead and the irreverence of our generation. Um, and so we thought it was hilarious. And so did 90% of the kids in my high school. And so everybody wanted these bumper stickers and they went everywhere and they became ubiquitous and and, and we also had friends in other towns and other high schools, and we distributed bumper stickers to them. So the fact that his name, uh, Dick Sweat, is comical, his name recognition went up, and that allowed people to kind of listen to what he had to say. And as you know, Paul, I mean, Dick is a really intelligent guy. He's, he's very much a centrist um, politically. Um, he talked about practical things that were not working in Congress at the time. He ended up defeating Chuck Douglas, who was an incumbent Republican congressman, first time since 1912. It was it's almost 80 years since a Democrat had held the second congressional district. Concord Coalition's been working recently. I, I mean, you, you cover kind of a wide range, everything that touches on the budget, which is kind of everything. You, you recently put out a paper with the Global Aging Institute saying that the key to the, the future for the U.S. may be maintaining high levels of immigration. That's a little counterintuitive yes. to some people. Um, why is that? What, what, what was your finding and, and why is that so important economically? Uh, you have to set up the context, right? First of all, you've got a society in the United States that's aging. We got all the baby boom generation are now um, getting to their 70s and 80s and, uh, and the birth rate um, has really not kept pace. And so we're having less babies. Our society is getting older. What does that mean for the economy in the big picture? Um, the working age population without maintaining healthy levels of immigration over the next 30 to 50 years, the working age population is going to actually decline um, by somewhere in the neighborhood of 15%. That's from today's numbers. So you cannot grow the economy without enough people to work in it. If you look at all of the jobs that are going to need to be created over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we need people to fill them. And so you need to import people from the outside. And so the, the, it, what's crazy to me is we don't really plan for this in the United States. We are more reactive when it comes to immigration. And what this paper advocates for is um, public policies from the, the federal level, because it's the federal government that primarily deals with the immigration issue, but then on down to the state and local government too, that plan for higher immigration. And strategically, you want to attract people, especially people with you know small children and, and families so that we can grow um, the population and grow the economy and fill those jobs. The actual level of immigration has declined precipitously since 1980. We're at the lowest level of actual immigration in this country since 1980 right now. And it, it's really plunged during the pandemic. And so we are behind 
other industrialized countries in the world, we have 14% of the United States population foreign born, as opposed to other countries like Canada, where it's 21%, Australia, it's 25, 26, 27. Other countries in Europe are higher than we are. What they're doing that we're not doing is they're planning for their future and they're actually being you know, proactive about bringing people in. So you know, there are ways or policies, we don't advocate for specific policies um, in this paper as much, but really kind of show the numbers. And on the other hand, debunk some of the common myths that people cry about and scream about um, irrationally when we talk about immigration. Um, and, we, and we can get into some of those as well. But, but, but the, the, the bottom line is, if we're going to have a robust economy that's growing, which definitely impacts our national debt and definitely impacts you know, our ability to raise revenue and budget deficits and things like that, we've got to have a larger working age population. So we, we, we have to look at healthy immigration patterns. There's a 30% difference in the working age population if we maintain healthy immigration or if we don't. That's enormous. And, and, and so, I mean, I think it's just time to stop being demagogues about this and just, you know, time to look at the problem as it is and, and work on it. With, with the environment as it is, with the hot button issues that, that everybody raises about immigration, uh, immigrants take jobs from, from Americans, uh, immigrants don't pay their fair share, um, immigrants uh, uh, don't assimilate. There, there are lots of, there are, there are all kinds of concerns out there. How do you as the communications director and how does Concord Coalition translate a, a sort of benign intellectual paper into the messages that will move either the public or the folks in DC that you've got to move about this or both? How do you, what's the strategy? What do you do? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, we start with doing things like this, which is tell the truth um, and talk to people and meet people where they are. One of the things we point out in this paper is that, uh, undocumented immigration, unlawful, illegal, whatever you want to call it, accounts for maybe 23% of the immigration into the United States. The other part, almost 80%, 77% of folks come through a regulated process and, um, get visas, green cards, Go, go through the process and have to wait for years. There are 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country. And the truth is, guess what? They contribute to the economy too. I think during the pandemic, we've seen how critical the jobs are that are held by undocumented immigrants in this country. And I think what we need to do, and what you know this being in Congress as well, is that some of the solutions that have been talked about are, are acknowledging that we have folks here that did not come through any regulated process, but that there can be a way in which to, you know, create a new uh, guest worker program or things that other countries have um, that would allow people to be here and work because they're important to the economy. 66% of Americans are positive and supportive towards immigrants in this country. And that number has doubled since 1990. So we see that attitudes are changing. I think this is the kind of thing that we could solve very quickly in Congress if there was the political will, because most people, I would probably say most Democrats and Republicans agree on a lot of the things that we need to do in order to have a more forward-looking and more um, proactive immigration policy in this country. It's just, it will take the political courage to step into the center 
Um, and our, the way our political system is built, it's just, it appeals to extremes. So I want to change gears on you a little bit and focus on another issue that Concord Coalition has been working on. You put out a press release on Friday, really yes. acting to the Congressional Budget Office doing a score. So l- let me just quickly give the background for our listeners. So every bill that goes through Congress is evaluated by the Congressional Budget Office to see what the budget impact would be. And when talking about the Build Back Better bill, the big Joe Biden social policy initiative, there has been a score from the Congressional Budget Office that says it pretty much will be paid for, will not impact the budget. But some members of Congress went back and said, okay, but what if some of the things that are only temporary in the bill were made permanent? What would that do? Now, the position that the Concord Coalition put out was that this new score that shows, well, if you did all the stuff permanently, in the Build Back Better bill, it would actually cost $3 trillion over a decade. The Concord Coalition's position on that is, well, that's revealing. That's that's really good information. That's, in fact, more accurate. Now, I'm going to push back a little bit on that position. In my view, this is a little bit like saying, hey, you know, if you got in a car and you accelerated and you didn't put any brakes in that car, that would really be dangerous. How on earth would you slow down? The fact of the matter is the car does have brakes. The Build Back Better bill does put a stop to some of the changes that it makes so that it does not cost net money to the budget. That's sort of, I, I mean, for, for listeners old enough to remember the Muppet show, there was a moment on the Muppet show where the character Sam the Eagle said, do you realize that underneath their clothing, the entire population of the world is naked? It's like, yeah, that's kind of <laughs> self-evident, right? Like, I mean, if you were to do something that is not actually happening in the bill and decide to do more stuff. Yeah, that would, that would cost more money. Why am I wrong about this? I mean, it, it feels like this, this is not much of a revelation that if you did something that is not actually what's happening, it would, it would be different. So let me give you one example. Um, the, one of the things that the Build Back Better Act does, which I think is one of the really important parts in the bill, is that it extends the child tax credit, which has been very helpful to working families during the pandemic, but it extends that child tax credit for one more year at a cost of $185 billion. And my point to you is, so you've worked in Congress. You tell me, are you going to be okay if you're a Democrat running for re-election in 2022, knowing that that extension of the child tax credit is going to sunset and then people's taxes are basically going to go up, or are you going to want to extend that further? And so I think uh, what, what we're saying is it's fair to take a look at if, if this Build Back Better Act is truly transformational, then you don't really do things like, oh, we're just going to extend the child tax credit for one more year, then we're going to take it back, thereby increasing people's taxes a lot. It- well, for our listeners out there, you probably just heard that Av Harris, our guest from the Concord Coalition, was having clearly some technical difficulties. We haven't been able to get him back. But we are closing out the show very shortly. So I think we'll just kind of close out this discussion on the point. I hear what Av is saying there, Paul. I mean, I, I, I get, I, I do, and I respect the Concord Coalition's approach on this, which is let's take a little dose of political reality. There's going to be an initiative to extend some of the provisions that are in this bill. And in fact, there's all kinds of things that are embedded in our tax code that are that are re-upped for one year. And every year, Congress goes through this exercise. It's called the tax extenders package, where they 
pass them again. And they say, yep, we'll do them for another year. But you don't have to do that. And that's the whole point in a democracy is that I agree with what Av is saying is that certainly Democratic members of Congress, if they pass this Build Back Better bill, will be under some pressure and they will have a genuine belief. And yeah, I want to keep doing things like this child tax credit. But there's going to be a whole new Congress coming in because we're going to have elections in 2022. And the Congress will have the option to extend that or not. Yeah, right. And look, we're also um, in a situation where Democrats... Uh, really are depending on this legislation, not only to have great impact, but to promote growth. And there is some discussion that the CBO's estimate about deficits and how uh, they will increase under the bill does not fairly um, fairly take in uh, the growth that is projected to occur from this. And uh, I know that Concord Coalition um, uh, wants to raise the issue and make sure that the 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 choices for future Congress Congresses and taxpayers are made clear, uh, and and that's pretty good from a from a political standpoint. Uh, in some ways, you know, you, you you might argue that the nonpartisan Concord Coalition has handed uh, the Republicans a political hand grenade, which and they're just waiting to pull the pin. Uh, because now they can say not only is it the CBO, but it's also the Concord Coalition, that nonpartisan group, which uh, tells us that uh, this legislation is just doing nothing but digging us deeper into the hole that you Democrats created. Right, totally. Okay. I mean, and again, I, I mean, just to be kind of clear about the whole topic, it is it is a very fair point. I mean, there are unquestionably gimmicks in here in the Build Back Better bill to make the thing not cost money on paper. And look, anyone who's ever like done a house project, right? Like you're, you're going to build something on your house. The contractor says, this is going to cost you $5,000. Comes back and it's like, hey, it cost you $10,000. Like Congress kind of operates the same way. And so I, I think it is a totally inbounds and fair point to say, you know, when push comes to shove, this is probably going to cost us more. I just want to though note that what we're talking about is Social Security faces a $31 trillion shortfall over the next 30 years. Medicare faces a $71 trillion shortfall over the next 30 years. The rest of the federal budget, the, the, the stuff that Congress kind of controls year to year, faces only a $3 trillion shortfall. So it could be true that if we did a bunch more stuff, it might add another $3 trillion. And we have massive fiscal realities we have to face up to. I'm just not sure that the hypothetical here is really the biggest problem that we should be worried about. And it has all the political implications that you just know. Well, for all our listeners with us at the end with the technical experience, and we've reached the end of the show. I'm Matt Robeson for former two-term Congressman Paul Hodes. We're going to sign off from Beyond Politics. We'll see you next week.